Welcome to Music History Monday for April 11th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The St. Matthew Passion. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the first performance on April 11, 1727, on what was Good Friday 295 years ago today, of Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion at the St. Thomas Church, or Thomaskirche, in the Saxon city of Leipzig. The Passion was performed three more times in Bach's lifetime, all under his direction in Leipzig on April 15, 1729, March 30, 1736, and on March 23, 1742. Bach revised his St. Matthew Passion between 1743 and 1746, and it is this revised version that we will hear in performances and recordings today. Our game plan for this post will be one, to discuss what a passion is and what the Gospels are, two, to observe the structure and scope and make some blanket observations about the artistic quality of Bach's St. Matthew Passion, three, to discuss the masterpiece syndrome and some of the good and bad things that phrase implies, four, to once again venture into the unmapped minefield that is contemporary identity politics and attempt to create a meaningful context for the St. Matthew Passion, and finally five, to speculate on how the parishioners and church officials who, having filed in and taken their seats at Leipzig's Thomaskirche on Good Friday, April 11th, 1727, reacted to hearing the St. Matthew Passion for the first time. The Passion. The Passion is the story surrounding Jesus' crucifixion as told in the Gospels. The word gospel comes from the Old English word godspel, which means good news or good tidings. The Gospels in the Bible's New Testament then tell of good tidings, the story of Jesus' birth and baptism, his ministry of teaching and of healing, and his sacrifice, his trial, death, burial, and resurrection. There are four such Gospels in the New Testament, Mark, Matthew, John, and Luke. These names notwithstanding, all four of the Gospels were written anonymously between about 66 CE and 100 CE. These four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, John, and Luke make up four of the 27 books of the New Testament. The story of the Passion itself, that is, Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, takes up but a small part of each gospel. In Mark, the Passion story is told in chapters 14 and 15. In Matthew, chapters 26 and 27. In John, chapters 18 and 19, and in Luke, chapters 22 and 23. Sebastian Bach 
set three of the four passions to music, the St. John Passion in 1724, the St. Matthew Passion in 1727, and the St. Mark Passion in 1731. Tragically, Bach's St. Mark Passion has been lost. We have the libretto, its words, but its music is gone. <sighs> Just the facts, ma'am. Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion is a massive, roughly three-hour-long sacred oratorio that sets to music the story of Jesus' prophecy of his betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial as told in the Gospel of Matthew. Musically, it is a full-blown religious opera presented in concert form with a narrator, a cast of characters, two adult choruses and a separate boys' chorus, eight vocal soloists, and two orchestras. It is replete with arias, recitatives, choruses, and action music of every stripe with a libretto by Bach's longtime collaborator, Christian Friedrich Heinrichi, known as Pickender, 1700 to 1764. The St. Matthew Passion features 68 different musical numbers divided into two acts or parts. Part one featuring 29 numbers and part two, 39 numbers. Even for Bach's family, Long accustomed to the otherworldly greatness of his music, the St. Matthew Passion was special. The leading Bach scholar of our time, Christian Wolff, writes, quote, The Bach family circle was in the habit of referring to the St. Matthew Passion as the Great Passion, and for good reason. If Bach's second wife, Anna Magdalena Bach, 1701 to 1760, wrote on a part the remark, For the great passion, those living in the house of the cantor of St. Thomas knew perfectly well to which work this part belonged. The great passion left behind not merely every other setting of the passion by Bach, but actually exceeded in its dimensions anything that was customary, indeed conceivable, in the church music of his day. Thus, the St. Matthew Passion forms the very pinnacle of the vocal works destined for church festivals that Bach composed." Unquote. Appraisals, a soapbox moment, and a gratuitous dialogue. Current identity politics are driving me crazy, and on occasion I must vent, like right now. Let us pull no critical punches while we establish something up front here and now. When confronted with a piece of art like Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion, even those superlatives we regularly fall back on like the best and the greatest and masterwork and masterpiece are inadequate. That's because the St. Matthew Passion is a transcendent masterwork. It goes so far beyond the artistic baseline of its time, or any other time for that matter, as to exist in a place entirely of its own making. Now, believe it or not, given today's intellectual climate, 
that previous paragraph will be considered controversial, even fighting words, by many otherwise sane people. That's because in that admiring paragraph, I indulged in hyperbole and superlative in what is called the masterpiece syndrome by presumably elevating one work of art over others, by presumably dismissing, according to some, any work that is not Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Here's their argument. We keep listening to the St. Matthew Passion, or for that matter, say, Beethoven's Symphony No. 3, the Eroica, not because they are intrinsically better than other compositions, but rather because we've simply become habituated to them. Besides, we are scolded. Who's to say what's better anyway? We are additionally told today that the masterpiece syndrome perpetuates racism by precluding potentially worthy works by minority composers from entering the repertoire, sexism by dwelling almost exclusively on music written by dead men, and Eurocentrism by elevating music by 18th and 19th century European composers over that of, say, their Bhutanese and Malawian contemporaries. Perhaps most damning of all, we are told that our criteria for judging what is good and not good is based entirely on outmoded cultural and intellectual standards. Hey, let's deal with that last point quickly. Here's my criterion for judging music that is good and not good. If I want, need, desire to hear a piece of music again, if I'm willing to reinvest my precious, non-refundable time by listening to a work for a second, third, or fourth time, it is good. As for the rest, I do not judge whether it is not good. I'm simply not interested in hearing it again. Let us rightly recognize that the sins of the white, male, Eurocentric music establishment must be acknowledged to the degree that we do not continue to perpetuate them in the present or in the future. But having done so, we will neither discard the repertorial canon as it presently exists, nor will we suspend our critical judgment in some misguided attempt at an artistic apology. Some would claim that the masterpiece syndrome has blinded us, or rather deafened us, to scads of equally worthy but unknown music. In a review written in 1996, the American pianist and musicologist Charles Rosen quoted a mercifully unnamed musicologist as having written, quote, There must be hundreds of symphonies just as good as the Eroica, but we just don't know them, unquote. Really? Really? No, we don't think so, because that's not how things work. One doesn't compose an Eroica-quality symphony in a vacuum and then see it disappear any more than someone with a hammer and chisel will suddenly turn out a Michelangelo-level pieta only to see it vanish without a trace. Artists and artworks of that caliber will leave a trail, one that academics and PhD candidates desperate for thesis topics would have picked up long ago. As for reappraising the repertoire, 
based on the standards, or should we correctly say the prejudices of contemporary PC? Prejudices that I personally find as nauseating as the historical prejudices we would do well to reject? Please. Readers of my blogs, particularly Dr. Bob Prescribes, know that I am always on the lookout for worthy yet unappreciated repertoire by known and relatively unknown composers. But in my effort to bring you that music, I would never counsel discarding the canon as it already exists. The process of building the repertoire should be additive and inclusive. There's no need to denigrate and ban any piece of music, particularly a consensus masterwork, in order to elevate another. A concluding dialogue, then, on masterworks and what might be perceived as critical elitism being, in fact, just another example of life not being fair. Permit me to extend a previous statement, one that sticks purely to the facts as I perceive them. Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion is a transcendent masterwork. It is from a spiritual, compositional, structural, metaphysical, and purely aesthetic point of view, among the greatest pieces of music ever created by anyone, anywhere, at any time." Unquote. Permit me to extend a previous statement, one that sticks purely to the facts as I perceive them. Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion is a transcendent masterwork. It is from a spiritual, compositional, structural, metaphysical, and purely aesthetic point of view among the greatest pieces of music ever created by anyone, anywhere, at any time. As we have noted, that's just the sort of statement that will make the arbiters of things correct wince and respond, a futile and potentially sexist, racist, and Eurocentric declaration at which I scoff on principle not because I disagree, but because in this day and age, one can no longer trade in such subjectivity. And why not, we ask? Because, at very least, one can't quantify the relative merits of musical compositions and create a valid ranking or series of standings. This is art, not baseball. Understood and agreed. Your point? What do you mean, my point? Are you a dullard? By granting Bach's St. Matthew Passion transcendental masterwork status, you are indulging in the worst sort of cultural elitism, implicitly diminishing other works by other composers and consigning them to second and third-rate status. Huff, puff, harumph. Well, you know what? There it is, in a nutshell. Life's not fair. Quality varies, and quality matters. A meal at McDonald's will be, by any standard measurable or intuitive, of a lesser quality than one at Thomas Keller's French Laundry. We can try as much as we like to apply an even-handed, democratic, non-elitist attitude towards the repertoire. All music is created equal. But in truth, it's not. And no matter how much some of us condemn the perceived artistic elitism inherent in the masterpiece syndrome, 
Some composers and some pieces of music are simply better than others by whatever standards we choose to apply, assuming, of course, that standards are actually important to us. So, by praising the St. Matthew Passion, have we unwittingly denigrated everything that is not the St. Matthew Passion? No. We're not elevating the St. Matthew Passion above most other works. Bach already did that for us. We are the grateful beneficiaries of his artistic largesse. And if he were here with us right now, we would give him a big hug and say danke. Thank you. How did it play in Leipzig? It's an interesting question. Did the parishioners and church officials who heard that first performance of the St. Matthew Passion 295 years ago today have any idea that they were witnessing the birth of a canonic masterpiece? They did not. That's because the concept of a musical canon, of an authoritative repertoire of musical works, did not exist at the time. In fact, we have no first-hand accounts of the audience reaction to the premiere of The Passion, although I do think we can safely assume the following. The more sophisticated listeners at the Thomas Kirche, particularly those enamored of opera, would likely have been thrilled with what they heard, particularly the gut-wrenching action sequence built around Jesus' trial. But many, if not most of the listeners, would have found The Passion excruciatingly long which it is, and the clergy and church officials would have additionally found the passion dangerously operatic, which it also is. Yes, indeed, dangerously operatic. I would present item number seven in Bach's contract with the city and churches of Leipzig, a contract he signed on May 5th, 1723. Seven. To the end that good order may prevail in those churches, I should so arrange the music that it may not last too long, and in such ways as that it not be operatic, but incite the hearers to devotion." Unquote. Not too long and not too operatic. Question. Is this just another example of despotic arbitrary and censorious behavior on the part of organized religion? Answer? No, it is not. It behooves us, for a moment, to look at things from the church leadership's point of view. Since early Christian times, that leadership walked a fine line when it came to music. They wanted church music that would inspire devotion to God, which meant accessible, prayerful, dignified, and attractive music. But they believed, and not without cause, that music that was too beautiful celebrated only itself and not the divine, that music that was too rhythmically exciting inspired only the body and not prayer, and music that was overtly operatic was too entertaining in a manner more secular than religious. However, to tell a composer of Bach's gifts and proclivities not to write music that's too beautiful or too exciting or too operatic or too long was, in fact, a complete waste of time. One might just as well tell a male dog not to urinate on fire hydrants. 
many, if not most, of Bach's seemingly endless disputes with his erstwhile bosses in Leipzig centered around just this issue, that of composing appropriate music for Leipzig's churches. While we may sympathize with the church authorities in Leipzig, we must thank heavens that Bach paid them little, if any, mind. We would observe the obvious. Great things are never created by people who do what they are told to do. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will pick up from here, describing the operatic aspects of the St. Matthew Passion and then discussing the pluses and minuses of three very different but very wonderful recordings, those conducted by Otto Klemperer on EMI, George Schulte on London, and John Elliott Gardner on Archive. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.